Hello everyone, this is an additional segment to the interview of Jerry Mazinski. Here he talks about the experiences in his early life that gave him the cynicism towards authority necessary to think outside the box in his later psychotherapeutic career. He also discusses how he adopted a more spiritual worldview and some experiments he did testing the writings of Carlos Castaneda on perception. Where did I get that anti-authoritarian streak? Now that was, that was very, very important because had I believed what the authorities were telling me, I would have never got to this point. You know, had I believed what, you know, the psychologists uh, were teaching me in undergrad school, had I believed what the professors were teaching me, I mean, totally in graduate school and then the PhD program, I would have never got here. But, uh, you know, I was, a, I was a really inquisitive kid, and, and uh, as a kid, I would ask lots of questions, and that's what I was doing to the professors. Um, and the higher I got up, the less they liked it. So um, it started with my father, who repeatedly broke promises to me as a child. So that was the first authoritarian figure in my life that proved to be, you know, not trustworthy. Um, as a kid, I, I barraged him with all kinds of questions. I was real inquisitive. Um, and I guess he got tired of a answering them after a while. And then he started making up lies for some reason. I remember one in particular, I asked him, Where do, what are the shields on the side of a Viking ship for? I didn't know as a little kid. I don't know, I was five or six or something. And uh, he said they're to keep the fish out. Now, I didn't know any better. And then years later, I was in class and the teacher asked, hey, does anybody know what those round things are on the side of a Viking ship? And I'll raise my hand and go, yeah, they're to keep the fish out. And everybody broke up laughing. I went, well, that SOB, man. Now he's, how many other things did he lie to me about? You know, how, how unfound is my basis in reality? I mean, if he's telling me these lies, how many other lies did he tell me? So it was like, that shook me up. Um, then years later, uh, my dad colluded with my scoutmaster and uh, in, in the Boy Scouts, and I was going for star, the star rank at that point, and it, it was it was hard back then. We had to memorize the entire uh, Morris Code by you know just memorize it, uh, and all these things. And I I was jumping through all these hoops, and uh, I completed everything I needed to do. But my dad went behind my back to the scoutmaster and said, well, he, he hadn't been going to church. So the scoutmaster said, well, you know, you're not, you're not very religious and uh, reverent or whatever is one of the scout laws. And he said, you're going to need to go to church for six months in order to get this star rank. And you'll need to bring in a note from the preacher saying that you were there. Okay. So I went, okay, I'll go. Then I didn't like it because I'd been forced to, and I went to one of the ones close that I could walk to from the house. And you know, while I was there, I mean, I didn't. They were they were building a model of a tabernacle, and I, it, there wasn't anything that really interested me, and I didn't really want to be there. So I finished my, you know, working on my six months there, and I saw that the pastor was having an affair with some married, you know, uh, parishioner. So I'm like, you know, <laughs> okay, you know, there's another one down. So, uh, yeah. So I finished my my six months, and uh, the 
I told the scoutmaster I was done and gave him the number of the preacher and he called the preacher and the preacher said, well, you know, he came, but he didn't set the world on fire. You know, he didn't look really interested and I, I wasn't, you know, but I kept my part of the bargain. And the scoutmaster said, no, you got to go another six months. I said, no, the hell I will. I kept my part of the bargain. You're the one who broke it. He goes, tough beans. You want, you want that rank? You got to go another six months. I said, I quit. I just quit. He eventually gave them that, that rank 20 years later as an adult. I wow. came up with the house. He had the thing. So he'd know he'd done wrong. Yeah. And then there was, you know, as you got older, you got the Kennedy assassination where they're lying. I mean, here's two bullets entering from two different directions. And here's the deep state blaming it on some guy with an old Carcano rifle up in some tower. Yeah. I mean, then you had Nixon and Watergate and uh, Vietnam War where they're lying their butt off. Like, oh, we're winning. We're winning in the body counts. I mean, I was thinking when the body counts, I was like, if those are correct, there's not going to be any males left in friggin' Vietnam. So, you know, oh, we're winning, we're winning, and then all of a sudden we get our butts kicked and, and they're helicoptering everybody out. <clears throat> and then, uh, so, you know, I didn't trust the government, I didn't trust the president up there, but what my dad did, uh, what impressed me with was the sacredness of professors. You know, I watched him as a little kid as he went through college and Rutgers, and, you know, they were as far as he's concerned, they were like gods. So he kind of taught me they were like gods. Um, and I kind of believed that. I thought they were like exemplary human beings and that they wouldn't lie, cheat, steal, do anything corrupt. Um, and then I found out otherwise in undergraduate school uh, in a ancient history class, which was an elective. You know, I didn't have to take it, but the book was like six inches thick. And, and this guy was a tyrant. And uh, he would tell all these sexist jokes in class, and, and I'd sit there and stare at him like, how can you do that? And I remember one day he, he looked at me, and he's in the front of the room, and he looked at me. He goes, you didn't find that very funny, did you, Mr. Marzinski? I said, no. <laughs> I'm just honest with him, and he just kind of went about his business. And, uh, I mean, there was so much stuff in that class. It was the only class I've ever pulled an overlighter for. Yeah, he, it was going to be over the whole God darn six inch book, the final exam. And I'm like, oh my heavens. So uh, he, he, everybody was kind of going berserk and saying, you, you can't do the, give us the sections that you're going to put in there. So we all wrote them down. And then when the final exam took place, he had lied. You know, half the stuff he said wasn't going to be in there was in there. And I thought I did well enough to where I really didn't have to worry about it. So at the end, at the end of the, it was a subjective test. I had a B up to that point, <clears throat> and at the end of the test, I went, you know, Dr. Heisman, why did, well, what the hell did you do that for? You know, why did you tell us that all this stuff was not going to be on? Then you put it in there. You know, uh, that's underhanded. And I turned that in, and when I went to check my grade, he gave me an F. I was furious. <laughs> I was absolutely furious. So there went my trust for professors down the down the down the tubes, and that grew worse with time until I got into the PhD program, which where it just hit its epitome. So uh, one one thing I I didn't like about undergraduate psych was that we didn't have access to clinical populations. We had to believe everything these guys were telling us. Yeah. 
and you look in the back where in the references and and you know <clears throat> I had a real hard time with that so you know you go this guy got the information from this guy who got the information from this guy and who got it from this guy it, it was like this incestuous train where they were all feeding each other information and very few of them had any clinical background so I was immediately suspicious um, and then one day in abnormal psychology we had a reading done by a psychologist uh, that we had to go to the library look up and I read that and here's this guy saying if two delusional patients were to confront each other with the same delusion one of them would have to give way and change his delusion and I went oh man come on now you know that makes no sense why would two crazy guys who meet each other with the same why would one of them have to change but this guy's writing this and it was published and I'm like that's bizarre. So I noted that in the back of my mind, and it was like, uh, where was I then? It was two, four, maybe eight or nine years later. <clears throat> I was working at Central State Hospital, the, the biggest psychiatric hospital in the world at that time. Um, and I, I was doing my rounds on the second floor of a psych unit, and I saw a new guy. And I uh, went up to him, and I could hear him talking to himself, so I knew he was, he was psychotic. And uh, you, could, you could hear that he, he was carrying on a conversation. It wasn't word salad. I mean, he was actually talking to somebody, like somebody talking on a telephone, but you couldn't hear the other side of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I went up to him uh, to check out you know, what kind of shape he was in, who he was, and I <clears throat> walked up to him and said, uh, hey, you're new here, aren't you? And he goes, yeah. And I go, what's your name? And he goes, I'm Jesus Christ. And I went, oh, okay. And I looked at him and I said, no, you can't be Jesus Christ because I am. And waited for his reaction. So if what that guy said was true, this guy would have to change his delusion. And he sat there and he was kind of confused. You know, he's like, and then he looks up at me and he goes, uh, well, then we can both be Jesus Christ. <laughs> and he strolls off. And I went, God damn. <laughs> you know, if they lied to me about that, what other horse shit did they feed me in those classes? You know? I, I don't object, Jerry. I, I just, I'm curious because I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. In this, I have this very naive faith in society, the state, the education system when I was young. And about the age of 17, it came crashing down around me through experiences with teachers. And then also... Um, one big thing for me was George W. Bush got elected oh. to the United States. And I just, yeah. I'd always believed yeah. the world made sense. And there was an absolute confirmation on every level that it did not, right? So that there was this loss of faith. But for me, it almost set off a kind of existential crisis. Because if you lose faith in your teachers and if you lose faith in the prime ministers and presidents, political system, society, there's a sense of, well, what do I have faith in now? And unfortunately for me, it wasn't long. It sort of coincided with getting into spirituality because my paranoia had been, well, what if you go right up the chain and you, you meet God in the end and you can't have any faith in God either? You know, what if he's just the same as all the rest? And I got into spirituality and I found something to find a sense of meaning in. So in spite of your losing faith in all these different aspects of society, you still felt inspired to go on and become a therapist and help people. And I'm curious to know, what did you have something that brought a sense of meaning to you in that way? You know, I kind of, I kind of went toward religion for a while. 
but then saw that that was also a control mechanism. So I kind of backed off from that and started, what I did, which was, um, this, this was interesting. I didn't put this in here, but I think it was very important. So after I had graduated from the master's program, I was on, I went camping with a friend um, in, in Savannah, Georgia, which, which had a lot of swamps. Right. So we were at the campground, and uh, my friend that they wanted to go to a sports store, and I didn't want to go, and I'm sitting around the campfire thinking, and I go, you know, listen, all this stuff that they taught me in undergrad and in grad school was all left brain stuff. You know, it wasn't spiritual stuff. I mean, it was so spiritually dry. Both of those were so spiritually dry. I mean, my soul was just shriveling up. So I got to thinking, well, what, you know, they totally ignored feelings other than reflecting them. You know, they, they would tell, oh, well, you make sure you reflect the guy's feelings accurately. But as far as them being a, a separate entity with their own knowledge and, and wisdom, it, it was totally ignored. You know, they didn't deal with that. And at that time, I was reading uh, Carlos Castaneda, which fascinated me. But I couldn't prove a lot of the stuff he was saying either. And, you know, lots of times he would tell uh, Carlos, he or Don Juan would tell Carlos, well, feel where you're sitting, feel this spot, feel this, feel that. So I got to thinking, well, what would happen if I followed my feelings for just this afternoon and cut out all reason? Yeah. And I, I went, well, okay, I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to go wherever my feelings lead me. Inside about 10 minutes, I was on private property heading into the swamp. Had no idea where I was going, but I was following the feelings. And here's my reason, screaming. You know, you're on private property. And then I heard this, this uh, ATV coming. And, you know, in Georgia, they have these guys that are running these stills. You know, they make illegal liquor. And they yeah. do it back in the swamp, in the middle of nowhere, where nobody can find them. And here I am going into the swamp. And I hear this ATV, and I, I hid in the, a big thicket until... He, he, as, as he was coming on, and here's the reason in my head going, you get the hell out of here because they're going to shoot your butt. They don't want anybody messing with their still. You know, you're, you're going to get shot. Get out. Go back to where you came from. And I'm going, shut up. You don't belong here today. Just shut up. And uh, it was like, yeah, 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 it's clear. It didn't want me to do this. I'm like, you know, what is this thing? So after that guy passed, I just kept going into the swamp deeper and deeper. And I remember walking along the edge, and here's all this muck and slime, and I was just kind of going in and out of the trees. And then this big snake just jumps out in front of me, this big black snake about three feet long. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's kind of, whoa. Then here it comes again. You know, you're going to get bit by a water moccasin, man. They're never going to find you. Nobody knows where you're at. You're going to be dead here for years. Nobody knows where you're at. Nobody's going to ever find you. You know, you're going to die. Yeah, and the, the snake went off into the, the weeds, and I'm like, shut up. You know, it's like, well, you're in danger. You don't even know where you're at. You know, the sun that's starting to get dark in a little while. You don't even have a flashlight. You didn't even bring out water. I mean, that's shut up. Get out. So kept going deeper and deeper in the swamp. It was like, uh, you know, an hour, hour and a half, two hours. I just kept going, you know, kind of because I felt going in that direction. And, uh, then all of a sudden I came across this, this uh, 
island. It was pure white sand. It was like almost it didn't belong there because everything else was like black muck. You know, it was just plants and black muck, and I didn't see any white sand anywhere the whole trip. And I went, well, that's interesting. You know, so I, I, I went to pass it and keep going. And the feeling, it wasn't in words, but the feeling just like, you know, no, go back. You know, so I'm like, well, oh. you know, it, it's strange to listen to a feeling that doesn't have words. So I went back and I'm standing there staring at this island that was too far out in the swamp for me to jump in over or to, to reach. And, and here's all this muck and, and I don't know how deep that went. You know, it was maybe five or six feet out, and here's all in between is water and muck, and it's it's saying go out there, and I'm going what what do you mean go out there, you know it didn't say it in words, but I I'm standing there and I could see the whole island from where I was. There wasn't nothing on it. There wasn't even a plant on it. There was nothing on it, not nothing. It was just white sand mound in in the middle of this swamp that was black. I mean. It, and I went, no, that's enough. That's enough. This is crazy. I'm not going to wade through the swamp to go out to this stupid island that I can see there's nothing there. That, that, that's enough. That, I, 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 okay, that's the experiment. It's asked me to do something totally crazy. I ain't going to do it. I'm going back. So, you know, I was fed up. And I started walking back, and it just kicked up. And it goes, no, you know, if you don't go back now, you, you're going to be wondering what happened or what you were missing for the rest of your life. So I stopped cold and I'm like, this is bull. You know, this is crazy. So I went back and I'm staring at that island again, just like, you know, why does it want me to go out there? And, and it, the push is like, go there, go there. So I started getting branches and logs and whatever I can find and building a bridge to go out there. So finally, after about half an hour, 45 minutes, and now the sun's starting to get low. And here I am in the swamp. I don't know where I'm at. I don't know how far I am from the campground. I don't even know how to find the campground back. And uh, I finally built the bridge, and I leap out there, and I'm standing on the on the little white sand mound. And I'm looking at my feet, and I'm like, okay, I'm here. Now what? And I notice these black sand crabs, which I've run into them a bunch of times before. What they do is they scatter in all directions when when you encounter them. These didn't do that. They were all going in one direction from left, or from, I think it was right to left. It, it wasn't, they weren't lined up, but they were all moving at the same speed in the same direction. And I'm like, that's odd. You know, why would they do that? It's the first time I ever saw that because normally they just boom, they're all over the place. So my attention focused on one and I'm watching him crawl down by my feet and he walks over a pebble. And I look around, and that was the only pebble on the whole beach, on the whole island. So I reach down to pick up the pebble, and it, it doesn't come out. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's strange. So I dig under it and, and go try to yank it out. And I had to dig further, and I, <clears throat> I grabbed onto it, and I started pulling on it. And out of the sand, almost as if it was materializing in front of my eyes, came this beautiful six-inch spear point that looked like it was made yesterday. And I'm like, holy cow, you know, that thing, I have it up on my board here. It's like that long and it was razor sharp and it looked like it was shellacked. It looked like it was made yesterday. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's, that's an affirmation. You know, I'm like, that's 
it's, it's telling me, okay, here's the reward. You did it. Yeah. So I'm like, wow, wow. I was real pleased with that. But by then it's starting to get dark, you know, and I'm covered with mud and my clothes are ripped from all the briars and stuff. And I'm heading back to the campground. I didn't know how far it was. And um, you know, got that, that, spear point i'm feeling good about the spear point but i didn't know how to get back now so i i started heading back and again following the feelings again and just as it was starting to get dark i got out of the swamp and i could see the campground in the in the distance so i, I walk into the campsite and here's my friend sitting there eating around the campfire and i i walk up all uh covered with mud and clothes torn and and cuts and scratches and, and he looks up at me and he goes what the hell got hold of you and i held out the spear point and i said look at this you know i said i was led right to it and of course he's going why what are you talking about are you crazy i mean i was <laughs> so I, I knew that thing was special and uh <clears throat> I, I wore it around my neck for a while, but it, it was so sharp it would poke me right in the belly. You know, so every time I leaned over, it poked me in the belly, and that would hurt. So um, I stopped wearing it for a while, and then it didn't feel right not wearing it. But the, the state hospital would have considered it a weapon had they found it on me. I mean, you could easily kill somebody with the thing. I mean, it was like a knife. So I didn't want anybody to know I had it. And I remember it was December 23rd. And it was back in the 70s. I forgot the year. <clears throat> but I had this tight sweater on. I, I put it on and I went, okay. It, I, I had this dream. Before, before I did that, I had this dream. And it was very vivid that I was walking through the psych rehab center where I worked. And that thing fell off my neck, off the thing I, the thing I had, the, had it wrapped around like a necklace. And I had it tied so real tight so it wouldn't fall. And uh, I had a dream that it fell onto a tile floor, just like the one in the rehab center, and that it broke in half. And after that dream, I went, oh, whoa, you know, I better do something about this. I, I'm going to put on a much stronger string. So I got a nylon guitar string, and I wrapped it around the head of that thing, and then got a whole bottle of super glue, a whole tube of super glue, and put it around that, and then welded the two ends of the guitar string together melted them together so they refused and then you know and then put it back around my neck and i went okay this ought to hold it yeah and on this that december 23rd i had a tight sweater on but i had it between the sweater and my shirt so it couldn't poke me and it, the sweater was so tight i went it, it's even if it breaks it's not going to get through that sweater because the sweater was i mean it was you could feel it was pressing so here I am that morning walking down the that aisle in the in the psych rehab center, and that darn thing broke where I had fused the the nylon guitar string together, and it fell right between the shirt and my sweater, and it hit that tile floor, and the tip shattered, just like in a dream. The only difference was in the dream it broke in half, in reality the tip shattered, and I I went into shock. I mean, I did everything. I was warned about this. I did everything I could to mm. prevent it. And here I am staring at that thing. It was like Twilight Zone. So do, 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 do. I went into shock and I'm standing there staring at it. And here's this spear point laying in the middle of the floor around all these psychiatric patients. And I stoop down and I'm just staring at it. You know, like, I can't believe it. I mean, I was, my mind just went 
blank in the shock. And then one of the nurses was coming up, and here's this thing laying right in the middle of the floor, right at my feet. And one of the nurses came up and said, uh, you feel okay? And I, I looked and I grabbed the thing and, and hit it. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And she didn't see it, which was, was amazing. So that was my confirmation that feelings will speak to you if you will listen to them. You know, that's something that Castaneda was saying and some of these other shamans were saying that this is a whole other world that you're not taught to listen to. You know, and they don't teach you to listen to it in school either. So, it, and it has its own wisdom. And I've had several other things similar to that happen to me that's saying pay attention to your feelings. You know, um, so that was the first break in the educational bullcrap where I knew there was something that they weren't touching. You know? um, so, so I was moving in that direction. I was always, even while in college and, and especially while I was in the master's degree, I was reading other stuff, Carlos Castaneda, shaman stuff, spiritual okay. stuff that didn't have anything to do with classwork because the, the, the class material was so spiritually dry. It was like being in the desert. It didn't feed me. You know, I needed something to feed me. And, and Castaneda was intriguing. Uh, the problem is I didn't trust him any more than I did the professors. You know, he's this wacko, <clears throat> it wasn't wacko, but here's a shaman that nobody had ever met except Castaneda. And here he's talking about all this stuff that seemed to make sense, but I couldn't prove it. And uh, I had to at least prove some of the most important facets of what he had to say to move on. Yeah. And I, I went and did that. It was pretty bizarre. I could have gotten a lot of trouble for it, but I did. Um, and I saw for myself that uh, I won't go into that story because it'll take a while, but the bottom line, unless you want to hear it, the bottom line was that if you your mind has encountered something that doesn't make any sense at all, that doesn't fit into your reality, like all this weird stuff that, you know, uh, Castaneda was talking about, uh, uh, spirits, this shamans talk about, uh, uh, you know, stuff that just doesn't fit into your mental framework of what the world is or should be. If something like that pops up in front of your face, you will either you will ignore it or pound a square peg into a round hole or rationalize it away. And I've seen that with the prisoners. I mean, I was working in, in, the, in the master's program. I was working with this one giant black guy uh, whose arms were as big as my legs, and he had murdered a drug dealer. Uh, and he rationalized that away. He said that guy needed to die. You know, he, I did society a favor by killing that guy. I mean, he was selling drugs. He was no good. He was cheating everybody. He was worthless. And, you know, I did society a favor and, and this is, this is, they locked me up for it. You know, and he believed that. Right. So at that point I went, well, you know, if he can rationalize that, you can rationalize away almost anything. Yeah. So, I saw that if something like that strange popped up, 
you know, I would try to first rationalize it away. If if I couldn't completely do that, I would pound a square peg in a round hole and try to make it fit. Because when something like that intrudes on your reality and it doesn't fit, you know, like flying saucers, like ghosts. Yeah, okay, because like, the example you gave there is like a moral thing with the prisoner, that he rationalized a moral behavior away. Uh, but yeah. with Castaneda, I'm assuming you're talking about something like flying saucers or something that challenges our concept of reality that interjects. Yes. Castaneda had stuff like that all through there. Hmm. But the one that I wanted to see for myself that I felt, and, and I go by feeling, after the feeling thing, I went by feelings a lot. You know, and I felt that Castaneda had something to say, important. But like I said, I didn't trust him more than any more mm -hmm. than any of these other guys. So I ran this experiment with some people that were they had no idea what was going on. Where with a, another Confederate, we arranged for something to appear in front of them that just didn't belong there, and it made no sense that it would be there. And it was very strange. And <clears throat> I had arranged to be away while that was going on. So they, you know, I could come back and objectively watch how they processed this strange thing that made absolutely no sense and would be very hard to rationalize away. And I watched as <clears throat> step one, that they... <clears throat> Well, what, what I did, I guess that would be, I had a ex-mental um, patient who was, he, he was as crazy as a fox, you know, so he talked his way out of going to prison by getting admitted to the uh, state hospital. And we trained him to be a cosmetologist and he started his own business and, uh, you know, I was his, uh, I was his psych all the way through there and you know, he gave me free haircuts. I kept in touch with him. He was the only one crazy enough to do something like this. Okay. So what I had from a friend was this uh, complete Nazi uniform. Who He was a collector who collected that. And I had it in a trunk, and I'd never used it. Um, and I ordered a replica MP40 Smitzer machine gun. And I would use this stuff at Halloween. So what we did is we went out uh, – <clears throat> I had a date with, uh, we had a, Rick and I, who, Rick was my friend, he was out at the lake. We had a date on the, the Saturday night with these two uh, social workers. Um, and what I did was, uh, went with James, called James, I said, James, I, I want to check this theory out uh, and I need your help. You're the only one I know crazy enough to do something like this. And so, so I said, what, what I'd like to do is dress you up as a Nazi stormtrooper you know, and have you appear in front of the car at night while I've got these two girls in there and, um, you know, then disappear. So what we did is we went out there and we went out on the way. Rick's house was like maybe seven miles down this dirt road in the middle of nowhere. Okay. So uh, James and I went out there a couple of days ahead of time, we found this bush and found a place where he could park his car. And you couldn't see behind this bush. So I figured this is a good place for you to be. So <clears throat> we found the place, I marked it off with a bunch of branches. And I said, what I'll do 
is I'll drive the car up to these bushes. I'll turn on the bright lights. I will take the keys and I'll walk in front of the bright lights and then I will disappear into the, off to the left into the woods. Right. I said, as soon as I disappear, I want you to walk out with that full Nazi regalia, the machine gun, jack boots. I mean, they weren't jack boots. They were riot, black rider boots made out of leather. You know, Nazi insignia, big red Nazi band, swastika, German helmet, you know, bullets, uh, everything. I mean, here, here was a Nazi stormtrooper with the German helmet appearing right in front of these girls. You know, and what I told James, I said, you walk very slowly in front of the bright lights. Do not turn toward them. Face the gun in the other direction. Do not even act like you see them. Totally ignore them. Just make sure walk very slowly you know, so they can get a good look at you. And there's no doubt that you're a Nazi stormtrooper appearing out of absolutely nowhere at night in front of their car in the middle of nowhere. So what I did is, as soon as I hit the other side of the road, I ran back behind the car and then started coming to the door. I didn't want them to be scared, and I wanted to be – the purpose was not to scare them or terrify them. The purpose was to watch what they did with that. You know? So Castaneda predicted that what they would do would be to change it into something that made rational sense to them. So James pulled it off perfectly. I mean, he, he just pulled it off perfectly. He machine gun and all. He walked right in front of those lights with the German helmet. And just as I got back to the back of the car, he disappeared into the woods on the left-hand side and vanished. You know? And I came back to the car and got in and just was quiet. And I, I said, well, I guess, you know, I, what I thought I saw, I, uh, there was nothing there. And I went, okay, started the car, started driving off. And they went, well, what, what did you see? And I said, well, I, I thought I saw a tank, but that's crazy. There's no tank out there. There's nothing there. And I kept driving. And they were quiet for about you know, three or four minutes. I mean, just dead silence. And I'm like, okay, what's happening here? You know? And after about five minutes, they said, we saw a soldier. First degradation. It's not a Nazi soldier. Yeah. Not with the, you know, didn't this armband, the German helmet. It's no longer a Nazi soldier. It's a soldier, which makes more sense than a Nazi soldier, you know, but still didn't make any sense. I mean, there's no a Nazi soldier. Did one. Now, there's a possibility that there's so, a soldier might be there, but that made no sense either. You know, and I, I turned to them, ah, you, you guys pulled my leg. You know, come on, you know, you, what, what would a soldier be doing out here in the middle of the night, at, at night, in the middle of the road, out here in the middle of nowhere, you know, and, and they just went quiet. So they didn't say anything else until we got to Rick's house. Now, Rick was there with the stakes already ready. So he, it couldn't have been him doing this thing. So when, as we were eating, they're still quiet. And I said, Rick, it's been, it's been a strange night. Uh, I, uh, I said, girls, tell, tell them what you saw. They said, they, we saw a hunter. Hmm. It went from a Nazi soldier to a soldier to a hunter. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I said, Rick, it's not hunting season, right? No, it's not hunting season. Well, 
I, I asked the girls, I said, did the guy have a flashlight? I said, no. What would he be doing hunting in the middle of nowhere at night? You know, so even that didn't make sense. So I'm watching this degradation, just like Carlos Castaneda said would happen. It's happening right in front of my eyes. And I'm like, holy cow. So it was like a few months later where they, one of them finished up their, their um, uh, social work internship at the hospital. And, and we were driving her to the airport to go home, uh, me and the other one. And before we got there, um, you know, I asked one of them, I said, hey, uh, do you remember what happened that night when we were eating? Something happened. I forgot what it was. And, and they went, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, something strange happened. But the one I was talking to on the way back, she didn't remember what it was. So they completely blotted it out because it didn't make sense. It was exactly as what Castaneda said. So what I knew then is that if when I encountered something strange like that, not to disregard it, and that I knew that I would if I didn't write it down. So I started okay. writing these strange episodes down because I saw myself starting to um, either explain them away or, um, or, or forget them. So I had this collection of strange things that happened that made no sense. I didn't know what to do with them, but I, I collected them up. The next thing with the anti-authoritarian was this, uh, the final straw was in the PhD program where the head of the department, when they called all the second year students in and began to teach us how to lie with statistics. I mean, oh, here nice. he puts this up and he's actually showing us how to do it and get away with it. And he puts up this normal curve and he's treating this, you know, end 5% as if it is the normal curve. And I, and I raised my hand. I said, well, w wait a minute, Dr. Stone. Now, what, what is going on here? Yeah. And, and I said, you, from everything I know, you can't do that. And, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, you can. You can make it look this way by doing this. And I said, but that's not the truth. And he goes, I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me and he goes, uh, well, if they're not sharp enough to figure that out, that's their problem. And I'm like stunned. It's like, what? You know, what? Did I hear you right? And I'm looking around at all the other students and they're, looking, they're staring straight ahead. And except for this one other fella, and he's looking at me like, you know, do you hear that? And, and we're both looking at each other like, and then we look back so he doesn't see us. What would have been his reason for manipulating? What was he manipulating the statistics for to achieve what end? What was he to trying achieve to achieve? Whatever he was trying to achieve, whatever he was, you know, whatever his end was to make it look like he wanted it to look like. But it was a lie. And later on, I found out that 90% of what psychologists publish is trash. It cannot be replicated. And, uh, you know, what goes on in, the, in those doctoral programs is publish or perish. And they will publish any garbage that they can get published. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not replicable. You know? So we've just got through question number one <laughs> well, it's one thing i can ask you to briefly mention because you might return to it i thought when i listened to interviews you there was a, an episode where you asked a professor where thoughts come from is that mm -hmm. right and there was a, that was the same guy to touch upon that because i think it's something we might return to that question later yeah that was the same that was the same guy at that same time so after he finished 
telling us how to lie with statistics. He goes, does anybody have any further questions? And the one thing that I've been trying to find for years, and I was thinking they hit it in successively higher levels of education, okay. was where do thoughts come from? So I'm like, okay, you know, this blows my mind. I've had it. I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm going to ask him. So I raised my hand and I asked him, I said, well, where do thoughts come from? And he looked at me like a friggin' flying saucer dropped at his feet. You know, he just stared at me for about 10 seconds and I went, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. You know, and then he, with his cold face, he said, uh, I'll talk to you after the lecture. You know, I'm like, uh-oh. You know, so <clears throat> I kind of went toward him after the lecture and he just turned around, kind of ran out of the room. And I'm like, ooh, that's not good. You know, that, that didn't help any. <laughs>